The following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. Father, we praise you and we ask that your name will be glorified, God, that we in this time, in this place, that we would make much of you, God, through the preaching of your word, through the hearing and reception of your word, God, that you um, would, be, would be honored, that you would be pleased. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place, God. We ask that you would give us sensitive hearts, that you would help us to be quickened to uh, your will in our lives. Uh, we thank you for your scripture uh, and for how it speaks with clarity, how it helps us to uh, know your character and your will in our lives. And we pray that you would use it today once more, God, as you are so faithful. Or you know, we, you've promised that your word goes forth and that it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Lord, and so we know that, um, that your will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray that we would be willing participants of that reality. It's in your name we pray, Christ. Amen. We are going to get into a new series, really excited about it. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up, and we're going to be in the book of Esther. Uh, we're going to be in the, in the book of Esther today. So um, it is uh, right after Nehemiah, so, and before Job, if that helps you at all. Um, it is what I want to do for today is I'm going to kind of give you everything up front. Uh, I want to give an overview of Esther. And so we're just going to briefly kind of tell the story of Esther. Um, we're going to talk about after that the main themes that uh, we're going to see in Esther. So what are some of the big things that we should learn from this story? Um, because we're going we're gonna to take it apart. Um, so we'll talk about those main themes. And then we're going to read chapter one and we're going to talk about three points there. So um, we're going we're gonna to move. So it's not going to be, you know, overly long. But I just wanted you guys to kind of know that's kind of the flow of, of what uh, we're going to be doing today. So um, the book of Esther is uh, such a, an interesting book. It's kind of like a, a, a Disney story in the fact of how it's told and its great reversals. You know, the book of Esther, uh, it starts off with uh, King Xerxes or Ahasuerus, and, uh, and he is king of the Persian Empire. And at this time, it's the largest empire in the world. And uh, it is spread out. It's, it's immense. It's massive. Uh, it says that he is king over uh, uh, 127 provinces. Uh, and so he, he is immense in power. And, uh, and the story goes on that he, for the first part, he opens up and it shows that he, for you know, six plus months, he's just showing off his grandeur. He's showing off his glory, his wealth. Um, and then in a drunken party, you know, he, he gets his guys together and they have kind of their, their hardcore frat party. And, uh, and in the midst of this drunken, he decides he's going to call his queen and kind of show off her beauty. She refuses. And so he turns what was something that was really a family matter to like uh, a national affair, you know, and, uh, and gets the whole crowd involved and says, hey, what should I do? And this is going to upset the whole, you know, the whole tenure. Everybody, all the families are going to start falling apart once they hear what, the, what happens here. And so he actually, uh, Queen Vashti, um, he deposes her. He, he takes her off of the throne. And, uh, and then in chapter two, it kind of gets up and he, he's kind of sad because apparently she was really good looking. And so he, he's kind of sad. And, and the eunuchs get together and they're like, hey, we know this will cheer the king up. Let's get a beauty pageant. Let's get all the really hot versions out there and gather them together, you know? It's like Persian Idol, you know, all over again. And so they get, they get everybody together and they're kind of showcasing all of these beautiful virgins, uh, all these beautiful women. 
And the way that kind of operated is that it, w- it wasn't really a great thing for the women <laughs> um, because there was kind of like three options in it. Either you come and the king doesn't like you. Uh, you know, you, for six months they were beautified. You know, they got, they, you know, got all dolled up. And so for six months, you know, that's a lot of you know, preparation. And you get one night with the king. And, uh, and so either the king didn't like you and then you were permanently a concubine. And that meant that like you didn't get, he never saw you again, but you didn't see any other man ever. Or he liked you, but he didn't like you that much. And then you were a concubine that he just kind of called on his will whenever he really wanted. Or he liked you, and then you were the queen. So, like, you know, uh, it's not very good for most people in the situation. And Esther is um, Esther's actually an orphan. So she is a Jewish orphan. She's in... Um, in a time where most of her people, most of the Jews had actually left uh, Persia 50 years ago. Um, Cyrus, uh, who was a king, several kings before Xerxes, had actually told Nehemiah and Ezra, and he, he said, go back. And he released a lot of the Jews to go back and to build, rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. And so he sent them back to go do that. And so Esther and Mordecai, and there were a remnant of Jews that remained in the Persian empire that didn't go back. And Esther is without uh, a mom and a dad, and so her cousin, Mordecai, is the one that takes care of her. He oversees her. Apparently, he's older, and so he kind of is looking out for Esther. And uh, apparently, Esther is, you know, is a looker, and so they got, they're like, hey, we're taking her. And Mordecai advises her, and he says, don't reveal your identity. Don't reveal who you are, where you come from. Just kind of go with the flow of things. And so she goes in and she just listens to whatever the eunuchs say. There's a chief eunuch and she just does whatever it is that he says. She listens to him and she goes into the king and, uh, and she wins the king's heart. The king loves her, thinks that she is, you know, extremely beautiful. Um, and he, he, he takes her to be, to be his wife. Well, it seems, you know, cool. You, you've got this orphan that now becomes a queen, uh, this great reversal. But all of a sudden, you know, the villain comes in. And, uh, and there's a guy named Haman who is called an Agagite. And really, when you look at that a little bit more, he comes from the descendant of Canaanites. Now, you look at the Old Testament, Canaanites and Israelites don't get along, right? They're pretty moral enemies. They go against each other. And so there is some deep historical, cultural, racial tension between uh, the Jews and uh, the Canaanites or, or, or Haman. And Haman is given power, you know, uh, the king has him second in command. And so he is given honor and he is given rank and authority and power. And he's full of himself, you know. Uh, and he goes out and he says, everybody should bow to me. Everybody around is going to bow to me because I am Haman. I'm second in command. But Mordecai refuses. Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. And Haman's told about it. You know, there, there are some of his servants to come and tell him that, about this Mordecai and about what he's doing. And Mordecai continues to refuse to bow to Haman. He, he won't do it. And so Haman, instead of just saying, I'm gonna take out Mordecai, says, I'm gonna take out your whole people. I'm, gonna, I'm going to not just eliminate you, but I'm going to eliminate the whole Jewish race from Persia. I'm going I'm to put an end to you because of your, because of your obstinance, because you think that uh, you're better than to bow to me as every other people group will. And so he issues, he comes to the king and he, he tells the king, he says, I'll give you 10,000 uh, talents of silver if you will but issue this edict and give me these people to do with as I please. And King Xerxes says, well, you can keep your money and, uh, and let's go ahead. I'll give, you, I'll give you these people, do whatever you please. And so he issues an edict that on the 13th of Adar that all the Jewish people will die. 
and that he, he issues it out and the king stamps it with his decree and sends it out to all the cities and it goes forth. And once the king has issued this decree, he can't like revoke it. It's not like he wakes up in the morning. He's like, that was a bad decision. I could take that back. No, once he issues it, once he stamps it and he's set forth, it is set. Even the king can't revoke it. And so it goes forth and Mordecai hears of it. And it says that he rips his robes and he fasts and he mourns in sackcloth and he, and he calls the people and they get together and they mourn because of this heinous plan that has been set against them. And Mordecai, you know, goes and he, and he, he actually, sorry, I think before this, actually, Mordecai, uh, in, this, in this process, Mordecai actually saves the king. So Mordecai, uh, Esther has become queen and Mordecai uh, finds out that there's a plot against the king that two of the eunuchs are actually plotting to kill King Xerxes. And so he tells Esther and he says, hey, tell the king that these guys are, are going to kill him. And she tells him and the, the king investigates it and finds out it's true. And Mordecai is actually put down in the chronicles of the king that he saved the king. The king forgets, right? The king doesn't honor him. The king just kind of conveniently is like, oh, thanks for that, buddy. And then just kind of goes on his way and forgets, doesn't really honor Mordecai. And you see God's sovereignty operating all throughout and just the timing of events because he forgets then, right? And so, Haman has set this plot to kill the Jews and, and uh, Mordecai comes to Esther and he says, Esther, God has given you, or he doesn't say God, he says, you've been appointed queen for such a time as this. Who knows? He said, salvation will come for the Jews. But if you do not rise up at this point, then you and your household will perish. But you have been selected for such a time as this to stand up. And the thing is, is that the queen couldn't just kind of like leisurely stroll to the king and was just like, hey, by the way, I've got a request. No, if you entered into the king's throne room without him requesting it, then he could kill you. And so for her to come and to make a request of the king was to put her life in danger because if he was in a bad mood, which we've seen Xerxes happened to be drunk probably quite a bit. And so it's kind of a gamble, whatever position or mood you're gonna get him in, whether you're gonna get him in a rational mood or in a drunken mood. And so for her to come before the king was a great risk. And so she says, go Mordecai and, and have the people fast, have them not eat or have them not drink for three days. And, and after that, I will go into the king. And if I perish, I perish. And so you see that after this happens, uh, Esther goes in before the king and the king gives her the scepter and she is, is allowed to come in. And, she, and the king says, what do you want, Esther? Ask whatever you want. I'll give it up to half of my kingdom. And Haman's in the area. And, and Esther says, I just want to throw you a banquet. I just want to honor you, king. And so please, if you and if Haman would come and be honored at this banquet that I would throw for you. And so the king says, of course, yeah. I love banquets in my name, right? I mean, that's great. Let's talk about me. And, uh, and so they throw a banquet and Haman comes out of this and he is just full of pride. He's like, man, I'm so, I'm so good. Like the queen is only inviting me and the king, nobody else. Like she just thrown a banquet for us. And so he's walking, he's, pri- he's prideful, he's full of himself. He's, uh, he's excited about his prominence in the kingdom. And then he turns and he sees Mordecai and rage and fury fills him. And he says, how can I rejoice when this Jew still lives? And he is still uh, shaming my name by refusing to bow. His very existence, uh, it goes against me. And so he, he orders that there would be a stake uh, put up and that he would be impaled on it the next day. 
And so they, they go to sleep, and, and the next day, uh, Haman comes to the king, and the king, apparently that night, couldn't sleep. The king couldn't sleep, and in his restlessness, he says, get the, get the chronicles to me and read to me these royal chronicles. And as the royal chronicles are being read, it just so happens that at this point, they start to read of Mordecai and how Mordecai had saved the king by revealing the plot against him. And the king thinks to himself, did I, did I honor Mordecai? Did I give him any recognition? Did I do anything to show my gratefulness for him saving my life? And so Haman comes in that day and the king tells Haman, and he says, what should, I, what should be done to the man that the king delights to honor? And Haman thinks to himself, who would the king delight to honor more than me? I'm his, you know, I'm his right Haman, I'm second in command. So the king, of course, wants to honor me. And so what would I like to be done to myself? And Haman thinks, he says, you know, what would be really good is I'd like the king's horse. I like the king's crown and, uh, and, and the robes. And for someone in a high office to parade me around all of the city and to say that thus shall be done to the man the king delights to honor. And so Haman tells the king this. And the king's like, that's a great idea. I want you to go out and do that to Mordecai. And so, and so Haman is now filled with shame and with humility, he has just been humiliated as he goes out and he takes the person, the, his mortal enemy, who he had sworn to kill that day, and he parades him around the city. And it says, thus does the king to the man he delights to honor. Haman goes home and he talks to his wife and he is utterly broken in shame. And they tell him, this isn't going to go well for you. <laughs> you're already, the, if this is a Jew, if this is what's happening, your destruction is imminent. And so Haman is filled with, uh, with anxiety, likely, at, uh, at what has happened and humiliation. And so he comes the next day to uh, the second banquet that Queen Esther had th- was throwing for them. Because her first banquet, she says, well, just come once more to another banquet that I will throw for you. And she throws the second banquet, you know? She's just warming them up. And she, she throws the second, second banquet, and she's got them hooked. And, uh, and the king is, has drunk a little bit too much wine once more. And, uh, and he asks once again, what do you want, Esther? What is, it, what is your desire? Up to half of my kingdom I will give you. And then Esther reveals and she says, the only thing I would ask is that you would spare my life. If we were to be sold as slaves, I would not even ask. But there has been an enemy, a villain, that has plotted against me and plotted against your servant Mordecai who saved your life and all of our people. This wicked Haman that is right next to you, he has plotted to, to kill us. And Xerxes, filled with a drunken rage, runs off to get his servants, and Haman realizes that his defeat is imminent, that he is about to be, he's about to be executed. And so he falls down and starts to plead with the queen, starts to beg her for his life. But as Xerxes returns, it looks like Haman is trying to molest the queen. And so Haman, and so the, the, the king Xerxes is filled with fury and rage and says, would he even defile my own wife in front of me? And so he takes Haman and he impales him on the very stake that Haman had made for Mordecai. And so you see the, the rise and the, the defeat uh, of Haman and the story, you know, alternates and Mordecai is lifted and is elevated as second command, but there's still a problem, right? You think that the story is, is solved, the villain is ended, but yet the edict has still been issued and it cannot be revoked. Is on the 13th of Adar, all of the Jews will be open to their enemy's attack. And so King Xerxes says to Mordecai and Esther, and he says, you know, I cannot revoke this edict, but I will allow you to write another edict. 
And so they write an edict and they send it out that says that all the Jews shall rise up, shall take up arms and shall defend themselves. And Mordecai's prominence in the king's uh, stamp of approval, it spreads out and all the Jews, uh, when it comes to 13th of the Dar, they, they gain victory over their foes and they kill those that would seek to attack them. And it, it talks about the, that they were rescued, that they were redeemed from this destruction upon all of them. And at the end of the story, they hold a feast and it's put in permanence called Purim. And it's this celebration of their rescue, of their victory from their enemies. And the Jews still hold this. They still celebrate this day. And so we see that this is hopefully just an overview of the book of Esther. And we're going to get a dive in more detail as we go throughout. What? We're done. We can go. No. (laughs) There's some things we should learn from this. So... So uh, some, I, w- I want to talk about five main things that we should take from this story that we're going to see over and over and over again as we dig into this story a little bit more in depth. The first thing that I think that this story teaches us is the reality of God's hiddenness. The reality of God's hiddenness. So this is the only book in the entire Bible that doesn't mention God by name. It doesn't actually, not only does it not mention God by name, but it doesn't mention anything overtly religious at all. There's no mention of miracles. There's no mention of prayer. There's no mention of the dietary code. I I mean, there's nothing distinct about it. It almost reads like you would think it was just a a, a pagan story, you know? And so there is this this hiddenness that you see in Esther, that God is is not overt, but he's behind the scenes. He's operating. And for me, this is, I think this is encouraging um, because what the author of Esther is doing is that they're in, they're intentionally withdrawing God's name so that you would intentionally search for his activity, right? They, there are places where they're actually having to be intentional to take out his name or to take out prayer, right? It talks about that they're fasting, they're in sackcloth and they have to actually take out the prayer part because those always go together. And so the author isn't just like, well, I just forgot God. Like they didn't forget God. They're intentionally doing this so that we would begin to read into the story God's activity, and we would begin to look more intentionally for his presence. But I think this is really encouraging for us because oftentimes we relate to Esther. We relate to this story. You know, we see in the Bible three kinds of ways that God operates. We see that God, like Moses or Elijah, sometimes God operates where it is very clear and very evident. He just parts the Red Sea. Like, well, that's God. You know, I mean, the sea just kind of splits and they walk through it. You know, not really too many other explanation or Mount Carmel where, you know, there's these, there's these, uh, the prophets of Baal, they're trying to offer sacrifices and God just sends down fire out of heaven and just licks up the sacrifice. Pretty evident, pretty clear God's activity there. But there are also times where you see like Joseph or you see like Ruth where it seems that God is active, but it's, it's kind of behind the scenes, it's operating. Then you have stories like Esther where it seems as if God's not there. Where is he? His name's not mentioned. There's no overt miracles, yet he's operating behind the scenes. And you see this, the, the rest of the scripture talks about this. It says in Isaiah eight seventeen, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm, 1, Psalm 10, 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 13, 1. Truly, you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel. Isaiah 45, 15. And this is, and this is encouraging because I've talked to many people that in different areas of their life, they feel as if God's not there. 
Where is God? I don't sense him. I feel like my prayers are bouncing off the wall. What, how do we operate when we see all this chaos that's going on around us? We see the world and it seems like it's spinning out of control. Who's behind all of these things? And we have these real questions and we have these real experiences. For me, it's reassuring because the Bible says that this isn't a surprise. God's people have felt this. They've experienced this. And God himself put in his scripture a book that deals with this, that talks about this experience. And so it says, listen, if you've experienced this, it's not new to God. It's not new to the experience of God's people. And he wants to guide us as we experience or as we feel things like this. That he has a plan and a purpose in the midst of it. The second thing I think that this book teaches us is God's sovereign activity and purpose. You see, while God's name isn't mentioned, his activity is everywhere in the book. It is everywhere in the book for those that have eyes to see and for those that have ears and that will listen. As I was reading, there was a commentary. It talked about um, uh, one of Rembrandt's greatest uh, greatest paintings. Uh, It was called The Night Watch. And it's a, a massive painting. It's in Amsterdam. Uh, it's like 12 feet long. You walk down this really long corridor and it's right there. And I want you to imagine that they're looking at this painting, this massive painting, a, a master and a student. And the master turns to the student and he says, I want you to find Rembrandt in the painting. Where do you see Rembrandt in this painting? And the student starts looking at the painting. He looks at all the corners of the painting and he, he can't find Rembrandt's signature on the painting. And he starts looking, he's like, you know, I know that Rembrandt usually paints himself into the painting. And so he starts looking at all of the faces in the painting, but yet he can't see Rembrandt's face in the painting. And finally, exasperated, he turns to the master and he says, I've looked everywhere and I can't find Rembrandt. I can't see him in the painting. And master turns to the student and he says, you look for a signature, but I see the subtlety of artistic style. You look at their faces, but I see the character of the brush strokes. And that is why you look at the painting and conclude the artist is nowhere. And that is why I look at the painting and see the artist everywhere. As you see, Esther is like that, is that when we have eyes to see, even though God's name isn't mentioned, we see his activity everywhere in all the spheres and all the little coincidences and subtleties and ironies and reversals. God is operating. And this is, I mean, when you look at Esther, one of the most unique things about it is that it is full of irony, right? It is full of these ironic things that like Haman has a stake that he's going to impale Mordecai on and to find out that the next day that he himself is, is impaled upon the same stake. It's full of these great reversals. And this is how one of the ways in which we see God work in this story. And so we see God's sovereign activity and purpose, it's everywhere even if we don't see it, even if we don't understand it. You know, see, you would never look at the king getting drunk and be like, God's at work in that. God's just, God is massively at work in that activity. But yet if he didn't do that, then Queen Esther would never have been appointed and her people never would have been saved. And so you see, God works in all of these different subtleties and all of the aspects of life, even when we don't see it. There's so much, there's so much similarities between this story and the story of Joseph. You know, that he's sold into slavery and that what he says at the end of, his, of Joseph's story, he talks about his brother selling him in slavery. He says, you intended this for evil, but God intended this for good. God is sovereign over all the things. and His intention is good all the time. The third thing we see in this story is that God uses broken people for his plan. God uses broken people for his plan. So he uses the king and the king is... Uh, is ignorant, is arrogant, 
is uh, incompetent, and yet God is able to use the king for his purpose and his plan. God is able to use also Haman, who is actively opposed in an enemy to his plan and his purposes. And yet, even God's enemies fall in part with his plan and his purpose. Even they can't thwart what he is up to and what he is doing. And the good news is that God uses his people even when they are in places where they're not, they're not perfect. They're not morally pure. When you look at Esther, Esther starts off in this place where she's just following Mordecai, yet almost all the commentaries, almost all the scholars agree that when you look at her and you contrast her versus Daniel, both of them are exiles, Daniel stands, makes this, this stand upon purity. And he says, I will not eat anything that will defile me. I will represent my God. I will not hide my identity. And yet Esther, she doesn't mind any dietary codes. She sleeps with a Gentile and marries one. She hides her identity, all of these things. But man, what's such good news is that God takes wherever she's at and he brings her to this point of utter boldness and courage where she would risk her life to save her people. And what that means is it's good news for us because it, listen, if all of us look into our lives, we're gonna realize there are areas where, where we compromise, areas where we're broken, areas where we're not perfect. And it's good news to know that God uses broken and imperfect people for his plan. The fourth thing that we see and we should learn from this is God's heart of rescue. God's heart of rescue. You see, the people that remained in Persia, a lot of them were apathetic to God. They could have returned. Most of the devout Jews, they left with Ezra and Nehemiah. They wanted to go back and be with the temple. They wanted to go back and continue to sacrifice. And so you see that there is a remnant that remains in Persia, but a lot of them had compromised. You know, a lot of them were kind of indifferent. But it's, God will discipline his people, but he will never forsake his people. Even, even when they have rebelled, even when their heart is hard, God will not forsake his people. God will rescue them. And man, this shows us, as we see that Esther is a type of Christ. She's a type of him because she would risk her life that her people might be saved. If I perish, I perish. And it shows us Christ shows a picture of Christ that Christ ultimately said, I will give my life for my people and I will die in order that they might live. And it shows us God's heart of rescue that no matter where we're at, God's, no matter where you're at, God desires to rescue you, to redeem you, bring him back to himself. And the fifth thing that I think that this book should teach us is that uh, we're a people of celebration, right? We're a people that should know how to throw good parties and eat good food and celebrate what God has done in our midst, is that you see the end of the book is that they, they throw party, they give gifts, they celebrate, right? They eat well, they rejoice because God has redeemed them and they did it consistently, right? They continue to remember God's deliverance over them. And if anybody, that is us. As Christians, we should constantly be in a place of, of celebration because our God is victorious. He has rescued us. Listen, the worst that could possibly affect you is behind you. It's on Christ and on the cross, what is ahead of you is so much better than anything that we can imagine. And so there is rejoicing and there is celebration. And that should, that should color every aspect of our life. When you're going through a bad day, when you're going through a bad season, you can rejoice and you can celebrate because that doesn't define you and that is not the tenure of your life. That is but a small speck in what eternity holds for you and God's resurrection and his healing. And so it means that we are people of celebration. All right, that was an overview. We're going to go through chapter one quickly. <laughs> so Esther 1, verses 1 through 22. Please bear with me with these names, all right? 
Now, in the days of Azurus, the Azurus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Azurus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of its reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Dude was wealthy. Like he had 180 days and he was like, come see my stuff. It might take a while, right? Like, I mean, this is like the ultimate show and tell. Like they accept, I mean, he's just like showing them for like six months stuff. Like, wait, let's go over here. Okay, let's go over here, you know? And at the end of it, it talks about, and then when these days were complete, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. So what this is like, you go to a wedding, and they're like, listen, all of it's on us. Just have your fill. You know, like, I mean, that's what the king is doing right now is, listen, drink to your heart's content, and then drink some more. Um, for the king had given the orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So they've kind of, the impression we get is they've kind of split up. The guys are like, frat time. Send the girls over there, and they're just, they're just going at it. Seven days of hard drinking. Um, not, not a good thing. Uh, and then it goes on, it says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, that's a frequent thing, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Ab- Abtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served the, in the presence of King Azurus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mers, Marcina, and Memekin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, according to the law that is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the commandment of, the, of King Azurus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memekin, Memukin said to the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the people who are in the province of King Azurus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Azurus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This is like Jerry Springer national style, right? I mean, like, it's like, bring the president to Jerry Springer, and then, like, we're going to display this, and, you know, this should be really secret, but we're going to air this on national TV so that everybody sees, but we don't want it to, we want it to be private, right? I mean, the irony here. Um, this very day, the noble women of Persia and Mede who have heard of the queen's behavior will say, 
the name to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out before him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Azurus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man may be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. That's chapter one. All right. Big idea uh, is that God is the sovereign and hidden king. God is the sovereign and hidden king. Uh, his plan sovereignly operates in all aspects of life. The title of the sermon is really the king behind the scene. And that's what you see in, in this. So the three things uh, we see is the vanity of the world, verses 1 through 9, the courage to say no in verses 10 through 12, and the illusion of control, the illusion of control in verses 13 through 22. So let's dig in. First, the vanity of the world. So when you listen to those first nine verses, um, basically all that's going on is the king showing off his greatness, right? He, he's saying, listen, look at how awesome I am. I mean, it's, it's kind of like you see with kids sometimes with the show and tell is that they're bringing their best and they're kind of like, look at how awesome I am because I have this, except the king has a lot. And so he can do it for a very long time. And what it what it's doing here is it's, and, and even, even as you go throughout, this is actually the most descriptive background that the Bible gives outside of the temple and the tabernacle. So he is describing in very particular, intimate detail all of the different aspects of the king's wealth. And it's intended to show um, how rich and how wealthy and how powerful the king is. But the irony behind it is that while the king is, is wealthy, while he has all this power externally, He's actually inwardly poor and empty. The things that should be most precious to him, the things that that actually connotate value and wealth, he's lacking, right? People that intimate relationships, you see that even with his wife, he uses her as an object. You see that he doesn't have true close friends, people that actually would care for him and actually look out for his best interests, that they simply are serving themselves. And so externally, he is a man that has great power, has great influence, great wealth, but internally he's bankrupt. And I think that this is a great lesson for us. It, it teaches us, it says, what do you think is wealth? What do you think it means to be successful in life? Because oftentimes the world says, this is what it means to have success, to have uh, this amount of influence, to have this amount of wealth, to have these possessions. And very, it's very easy for us to be swallowed up in that culture because it's like, it's like a river. We just simply are in it. And sometimes we don't know how fast that current is until we start looking at other objects, until we start looking at God's word and it shows us how quickly we are being swept up by our culture. And so it's, it's in this that, um, well, also Solomon teaches us this lesson as well, right? I mean, while it's implicit here, Solomon teaches it to us explicitly. When you look at Ecclesiastes, Solomon is a man that sought to test his heart on everything, he said, I, God gave him wisdom. He's like, listen, I'm going to see if there's anything under the sun that has purpose, that has satisfaction. And so he, he went and he put his heart, and he says, I'm going to accumulate wealth. And Solomon became uh, the wealthiest man of the, uh, that we know of in the Bible. Right? He, he accumulates massive amounts of wealth. He says, I'm going to test my heart with pleasure. 
And so he, he's got over a thousand different women that he can do with whatever he pleases. And he says, he finds that it's empty. He says, I'm gonna have the most entertaining company. I'm gonna be around the stars. I'm gonna be around the entertainers. I'm gonna have the people that are the most interesting and influential people at my table. And so he threw massive parties. I'm gonna test my heart at success. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna become an entrepreneur. I'm gonna build things that last. I'm going to... Uh, I'm gonna do things that endure. And you see that he goes and he tests his heart in all of these things. At the end of the day, he says it's, it's empty. He even says, I'm just gonna chill. Right? He tests the retired life. He's like, I wanna see what it's like to be retired before I'm retired. You know, like, I'm just gonna like, you know, I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay around. Not that everybody that's retired does this, but oftentimes our culture says that this is what retirement should be or should look like. I'm just gonna lay around. I'm gonna have people massage me. I'm gonna, you know, eat the best of foods. I'm gonna travel wherever I want. And he's like, you know what? I found that I got really bored. And I found that life really held no meaning when it was simply about entertaining myself. And so Solomon brings us in. He says, don't you see that, that chasing after the world, that it's vain? That, that what the world says is successful is actually bankrupt and poor. That God's kingdom is, is better. And this is what Esther, I think, is trying to invite us into. And it's saying, listen, while they live for a kingdom that they can see, we live for a kingdom that we can't see. But we experience internally and is far richer and is far better than the kingdom of this world. First John two fifteen through seventeen it talks about this it says do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world and the world is passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever think about the Persian Empire King Xerxes King Xerxes his empire came and and, and went gone. It's no more. His wealth is vanished. Esther, her faithfulness and what she did for the kingdom of God, it endures. It lasts forever. And so you and I, what we do for the kingdom matters infinitely more than how much we accumulate on this world. And so what do we live for? Second thing we see is the courage to say no in verses 10 through 12. The king is in this drunken uh, state and he says, you know, I've shown you all of my wealth. I've shown off everything except for the queen. And so notice you see the role of alcohol in this. Is it, it wasn't like on day one, he was like, let me be really dumb and turn my wife into a sex object. No, like it took time. So you see slowly and surely the, his inebriation, his intoxication eroded any sense of, of decency, any integrity in his heart. And it was a slow fade over time. And so too, oftentimes alcohol does this. It starts out, well, it's not a big deal, and over time, it's a slow fade. And all of a sudden, we do things that we never could have imagined. And we find ourselves in positions that we never thought we'd be in. And the king, I'm sure, looked back and at some point, perhaps in chapter two, you see he has regret about the decision he made in Drunken Step. And, and the, the eunuchs are like, listen, we'll help your drunken regret and we'll just bring more beautiful women. And, uh, and so you see, but, but I think one of the things that this story shows us is that as Vashti is, is kind of put up as this model, that she has the courage to say no. I mean, think about this. She understands the consequences of her decision. She's a queen. And the king is asking in this moment, he's turning her into a sex object. Now, the older Jewish commentators, they talk about that perhaps she was actually paraded in only her crown, that he was, she was to be taken out naked. Some modern commentators don't, maybe don't think that it, that's that. But either way, the, the intention of the king's heart 
is to use her as an object and to display his identity because I'm with her, she's with me, she's mine. And so he's turning her into an object, not a person. Instead of protecting her as he's called to do, he's using her. And I think that we look at Vashti and and when she says no, she realizes that she's likely putting herself in a position of death. But to say no to the king, especially in a drunken rage, is to put yourself in a position of, of being in his fury and in his wrath, which can often mean death. But what happened to her, there's consequences for saying no to the empire, is that she was banished, right? And what that means is that she was deposed. She, it meant that she probably stayed somewhere in that realm, but that she was never to marry again. She would never have any other romance that she would, because when you were with the king, you're never with anybody else. And so her, her consequence was that she didn't come to the king, but she would never come before him nor any other person ever again. And so she stood up in her integrity and in her courage, and she said, no. What are ways that we're called to say no against the status quo, against the instances of, of power in this world as they would seek to lead us astray? And I think another thing that this teaches us is that God's given common grace, right? Vashti is not a, a follower of God, but God has given common grace and that we as Christians should have great humility and realize that there are people that we can learn from all around us. That simply because someone isn't a Christian doesn't mean that God hasn't given them uh, certain insights or certain, you know, certain abilities to say no and that there are things that we can learn from even, even those that are different from us. That we should be humble enough to, to look and to learn from all different kinds of people. But what are, the, what are the, some of the areas that God would call us like Vashi to say no? So, I think one of the ways is, men, how do you talk about women? We live in a culture where, well, it's just locker talk, and that's acceptable. That's fine. How you talk about women isn't just fine. How you talk about them affects how you treat them. And so one of the things that we should learn to say no to as men is engaging in that kind of conversation that will belittle women, that would treat them as an object rather than a person with dignity and, and rights and value. I think another way is... is Men, do we say no to pornography? Do you, do you maybe, you don't talk about women in that way, but in privacy, and, but when it's just you alone, you treat women as objects for your pleasure. You're addicted to that. If you are, man, say, seek to say no. And trust me, lots of you are like, if only were that easy, if I could just say no, because addiction has grabbed a hold of you. Listen, there's freedom. God wants to free you. And part of that freedom comes with confession. I struggled with that for many, many years and I, I, the Lord brought freedom through confession and through getting together with other men and, and us walking together in that struggle and, fi- and, and finding freedom. Saying, man, I think this is one of the ones that our culture just says, saying no and having a conviction that it's not okay to have premarital sex, that God would call you not to live together before you're married. That is, I think that is one of the most prominent ways in which we see people that are Christians say, well, listen, that's, that's a little too high and lofty. God wouldn't really call me to that. And I think that one of the ways that you show that you honor women as a man is that you say, listen, I'm not just going to use your body, but I'm going to, whenever we're one, we're going to be one, not just physically, but we're going to be one financially, spiritually, and legally. Because when you simply use a woman for her body, you're making a lie. You're saying, I'll be one with you physically, but I really don't want to be one with you legally or spiritually or financially. I really don't want to bear that burden, but I just, I like your body. That's great. That objectifies and it uses women and it will rot your soul. It, 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 begin, it will affect your marriage, affect how you treat one another. And so have the conviction to say no 
stepping stepping out on that, I guarantee is going to is going to honor the Lord, and it will only help your relationship, bring clarity into it. Women, say no, say no to dressing in such a way that your value is found in your appearance, and that you're flaunting something that other men or other people would want to look at and try to identify you by that. Choose to say that your beauty isn't simply how you look or what makeup you wear or what dress you wear, but your beauty is in how you act and how you live and how you honor the Lord. That that is what is true beauty because our culture wants to press against that at every turn and says, yeah, it's nice to have good character, but what you really want is this. You want to look like this. And the kingdom of God says, no, that is not what beauty is. Beauty is primarily something that emanates from a character that is submitted to God. And you can live in such a way that exemplifies that or you can deny that. Say no to comparing yourself to other women. That your value is not found in how you look in comparison to that person or to that person. Say no, and I think this is one way in which our culture is, is talking about things that have needed to be talked about for a while and Yes, it can swing to the other degree. But, but women say, no, it's not okay for a man to use you. It's not okay for him to abuse you. Unfortunately, it, it breaks my heart. I've sat down with many women that have been abused at the hands of men in power. That have, men that, should have, that had authority, that should have used it in a way that was loving and was caring and was uh, in a way that protected, instead used it in a way to harm and to degradate. And so it takes courage for a woman to actually step up and say, that's not okay for them to report, for them to, to talk about that, for them to bring that to light. And yes, it can be abused, but absolutely I think that there has been a power swing that has been, that men have used that in a way that has not been loving and not been caring. And so it takes courage for, for someone that is in a place where they don't feel like they have power to stand up and to say, no, that's not right and I will not be treated in that way. So those are some ways, but there are lots of other ways that God would call us to ha- have courage, that we would step up and we would say no to things that the world... Uh, and, and influences of places of power would seek to put upon us. And the last point we see is the illusion of control. The illusion of control. Now, remember, Xerxes is supposed to be the, the world empire. This is the largest, most powerful empire in the world, and he is the king of it. And so uh, he is supposed to have control. And you see this, is that, you know, Vashti defies him, and it's kind of ironic in that, you know, he is exerting, look at all the things I have, look at all the power I have, I rule all these nations, and yet, in his house, his wife rebels against him and it goes, everything falls apart, right? I mean, he, he issues a national decree because of a family issue. And so it shows that he, he has no control. And it's, it's even more ironic because he's like, listen, we don't want this to get out. Like, we don't want all women to start doing this. And so we need to issue an edict so that everyone knows about it, that they shouldn't do it. And so you show, it just sees, it, it makes fun of, and, and it's using satire to kind of, bring laughter to the situation to show that these guys really aren't in control. They really don't have things together. And this is, this is one of the purposes of Esther is that it's intended to bring kind of this irony that brings levity to the idea that these world powers, they don't, they're not the ultimate ones that are in control of things. They're not really running the show. That's what the world wants us to think is that, that these politicians, that they're the ones that have the, the say, that they're making the, the policies, they're the ones in control. And what he says here is he says it's, it's laughable. God is the sovereign one. Not that we don't steward our vote, not that we don't care, but God is the sovereign one. You see this in, in Psalm 103, verse 19. It says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. 
Proverbs 21 and 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Psalm twenty two twenty eight: for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. 1 Timothy 6, 15b through 16, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. What this shows us is that God is the king behind the scene. Even though Esther uh, and, and King Azurus, it seems that he is the one running the show and it seems as if he's being used as a puppet to his advisors, what we really see is that God is the ultimate king and that he is orchestrating all of these things and he allows people to have authority for a time and for a season. And we see this ultimately in Jesus. Jesus is before uh, Pontius Pilate and Pontius Pilate says, don't you know I have authority over you? I have authority to crucify you. And Christ turns to him in this conversation, this intimate conversation, he says, you would have no authority over me had not my Father in heaven given it to you. Even at this very moment, he could call down legions of angels and rescue me. And so you see that, that Jesus realized, and he, he realizes that there is a greater authority than the authorities that are here. And you and I, we need to as well. Because what it does is it brings peace when there is political chaos or turmoil. Some of us, you know, right now is a time of chaos or turmoil. Others of us, we really are enjoying this term. And so what it means is it means that whoever's in office, whatever it is, do you really believe that they're not the ultimate ones that are in authority? That they aren't the ultimate ones that are in control? That God is a sovereign king ruling. And this should bring a sense of peace in our lives. This doesn't bring, it doesn't mean we're apathetic. It doesn't mean we don't care or we don't vote or we don't seek to institute godly principles or policies. But what it means is that we trust that our God is able to orchestrate and work in through all things and through all people, whether they are with him or against him, he is a sovereign king and he is working all things together for his plan, his counsel. And so as we close, that's my encouragement for you, especially as we come up and voting's on November 6th, coming up this Tuesday, is that you would vote, but that you would also, you would do so in a place of peace. You would do so in a place that says that God is the king, that he is the sovereign one that rules over all and I trust him. I don't trust in man. I don't trust in our government. My trust is in God. Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for the book of Esther. Thank you um, that you are in control, Lord, that you are the sovereign one, and that you, even if we don't see in the moment how you're working things together, God, you are behind the scenes, and you are orchestrating all of these different events for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. And so help us, God. Help us to come and to lay down our anxieties to lay down our frustrations and to receive the peace that comes with your lordship, with believing that you are God and you are good. We love you. It's in your name we pray, Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.